All right, welcome, Mosaic. I'm gonna invite you guys to stand up with us. If you're joining us online, we're so glad you're here with us. You know, in Psalms 145, it talks about Jesus being a trustworthy God, a promise maker, and a promise keeper. Okay, let's respond to that tonight, okay? have a seat. Welcome, welcome to Mosaic. We are so glad that you're here. If you're joining us online, thank you for joining us and uh, just welcome. Glad we're gathered to worship. Hey guys, we're kind of moving and feeling like things might be 
kind of heading back to normal. One of the things that, that's just core, has always been core of who fellowship is and who mosaic is, is that we believe that as, as followers of Jesus, it is incredibly important for us to be connected to other believers and, and to walk together in community. And so many of you have, uh, have been in community groups that have actually found a way to stay connected. Some of you have not, and, and that's fine. But as we kind of look forward and thinking about, hey, we're going to be able to start gathering and connecting again, just want to let you know, and you'll hear more about it in the, in the weeks to come, but this summer, we're going to start offering opportunities for those of you that God is stirring in your heart that possibly you might want to be a part of leading something in community. And, uh, and so we just want to let you know there's some things coming up that, that give you an opportunity to explore that and to learn more about that coming up this summer. So put that on your radar and be looking for that. We are starting a new series uh, tonight. We're going to be studying, walking through somewhat of the book of Hebrews. We're not going to be able to take it verse by verse and go all the way through it. We're just kind of hitting some highlights of the book of Hebrews. And I wanted to take just a minute to kind of introduce the book to you and talk to you about what you can expect in this series and, and kind of what I'm excited about in this series. Um, most of the New Testament was written in the form of letters or written communication to, to churches or from, from an individual to a church or a group of churches. And Hebrews falls into that category, but as you start reading through the book of Hebrews, and I'm hoping that, that you'll do that. In fact, if, if you have a devotional guide, uh, and if you don't have one, there's some out in the, in the foyer. But if you have a devotional guide, if you read those, those readings in the devotional guide, you will end up reading through the entire book of Hebrews. And if you read through it, you'll notice, well, it doesn't read exactly like the other letters in the New Testament. And in fact, it really reads more like a sermon or something that was written to be read aloud to a congregation. And so it reads a little more like that. Another thing with most of the letters uh, it's pretty clear who wrote it. Either they signed the letter or the church at a very early uh, point in history, you know, they were able to identify who wrote it. We have no idea who wrote the book of Hebrews. And the reason I say that is because as you hear our teachers go through Hebrews, they'll probably something, say something like, the writer of Hebrews, and they'll never give you a name. Um, in fact, one, one early church leader said, God only knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. But anyway, so I wanted to kind of give you that heads up. But we do know that the people that it was written to were practicing Jews when they came to faith in Christ. In fact, it's so connected to their Jewish heritage, it's, diff it's kind of difficult for those of us who maybe don't understand or don't have a, a good knowledge of Jewish faith and history you may read it and go, I don't quite understand what he's talking about or what the big deal is. But it's important for us to remember that our Christian faith is rooted in what we call the Old Testament, which is actually just the Hebrew Bible. And our Christian faith is rooted in that Jewish heritage. And as we go through Hebrews, I hope it will deepen your understanding of your own faith as you begin to see those connections and how God has been faithful and true all the way through the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament. Another thing about we know about the people who that uh, received this letter is that they were struggling uh, with persecution and the temptation to leave the faith. And I think one reason why this study is so relevant for us today is I, I'm just hearing probably more frequently than ever, I'm hearing about followers of Jesus who are beginning to re-examine their faith and maybe even question, and maybe even consider, is, is this thing true? And is this real? And some are abandoning their faith completely for other belief systems or no belief system at all. And I think the book of Hebrews is incredibly relevant to today because it's to people who were wrestling with that very question all the way back almost 2,000 years ago. This book answers the questions why should I hang on to this faith and keep following Jesus? Is it worth it? So if you've ever asked that question, and I want to tell you, I've been walking with Jesus pretty much all my life. I was raised in the faith. And I've asked that question more than once in my life. Is it worth it? And so as we go through the book of Hebrews, I hope that you will find the answer to that. Yes, it is worth it. But the, the way Hebrews answers this, these questions is with two powerful truths. First, you're going to hear us say repeatedly, Jesus is better, higher, and greater than any other being or any other thing you can put your trust in. 
The book of Hebrews magnifies Jesus as much or more directly of any book of the Bible. And so you're going to hear us say, Jesus is better. And second, the answer to that is the reward of the life of faithful perseverance is better than anything this world or any other belief system can offer. So my hope is that through this series, uh, we'll be amazed by a greater view of Jesus and we'll be encouraged to stay faithful to the one who's always faithful to us. So looking forward to, to jumping into that with Mark as he leads us tonight. So would you stand with me? And let's take a moment to just focus our hearts on the Jesus who has always been faithful to us. Lord Jesus, we bow in your presence because you deserve our worship, our praise, our adoration, and our love. You're worthy of our devotion of our very lives. And so, Lord, we are looking to you in great in, in gratitude, in thankfulness, in praise, and in worship. May the praise of our lips just bring joy to your heart tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
back, I'm going to sing this bridge out. Because I think we need to be reminded of this tonight. Whatever your season is, whatever your circumstance is, this truth does not change. Can we declare it just one voice as the church? Who can stop? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the
Our Father, Creator, you hold our hearts together. There's no one higher than you. Redeemer, Defender, our great and mighty Savior, there's no one higher than you. There. 
God, we stand under this truth tonight in your presence with you here. Grateful for your presence always with us, your faithful love, your loyal love for us. We're so grateful, so grateful for the love you've shown. Church, would you remain standing for the reading of the word? Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for the sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Amen. 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 You know what I'm excited to be part of is a group of believers who, regardless of circumstance, choose to continue to gather in the name of Jesus Christ. A couple of years ago, uh, well, actually several years ago now, maybe even three, a group of believers began to pray on Thursday morning for our city, for our church, for revival in our area. And then the pandemic hit, and many of those believers being older, it pushed them apart. And guess what they did? They got a Zoom account. And the prayer meeting continued to grow and became more faithful. And I tell you, it's one of the hour times that I look forward to the most. It's the only Zoom meeting I do all week long, all week long that does not fatigue my mind. And it's been good to see that happen. And, and things will begin to move live here for them very, very soon. How are you this evening? Are you ready for a jump in in the book of Hebrews? You heard Doug lay out the introduction to the book there and why this letter is so unique and what makes it so rich for a history of believers. Can I read you a story of what might take it a little more personal if you were in those first century believers' shoes the year is 65 AD, Antonius sat alone in a second-story apartment located in a slum in Rome. He ate his dinner of bread, vegetables, and a cup of sour wine. Antonius lit a small oil lamp, and he watched the hungry roaches scamper back to their dark cracks in the wall. In the apartment next door, a baby cried, and the infant's father screamed obscenities at the infant's mother. Somewhere in the muddy street below, a centurion barked orders to a unit of Roman soldiers. Antonius sat alone, thinking about his day. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly man named Brutus, once again ridiculed this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as the gnats in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Antonius wished he could strike back rather than turn the other cheek, yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom, but since the expulsion of the Jews under Emperor Claudius, Christians had been harassed by Jews and pagans. Some suffered imprisonment, beatings, and the seizure of their property. In fact, Antonius' own grandfather, the ruler of the synagogue, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of the Christians. When at age 17, Antonius converted to Christianity, the old man declared Antonius dead to the family. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated and now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. He'd been told of the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow this was far worse than he expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken. 
that he would always feel the presence of God. He had been taught that the Lord, the righteous judge, would vindicate this new covenant people. But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. Some, in their disillusionment, doubted and left the church altogether. Antonius, well, he could remember the traditions of the synagogue, the support of the Jewish community, and the joy of the festivals, and the celebration of the Jewish calendar. Yes, he appreciated the fellowship of this new Christ community, but, but he genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors, and he missed his family. To make matters worse, he was one of the poorer members of the church. And when Antonius became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's apprentice in the Jewish quarter. Now he spent his days sorting rotting produce, sweeping the floor, swatting flies, and receiving orders from obnoxious Roman slaves shopping for their rich mistresses. To be poor and a Christian invited double portions of ridicule. Antonio had missed the house church's weekly worship and meal for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat towards this little group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him about this loss of perspective, yet in recent days he had begun to snuff the thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius's bitterness over his current circumstances it was growing, and it was slowly crowding out the truth of the gospel. That night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumor had it that the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the night's meeting again, his curiosity was aroused, and Antonios decided he'd travel the short distance to the neighborhood house where the fellowship would meet. Entering the gathering room, he greeted several friends, and the hostess offered him something to drink. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and godly man of 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved as he stood smiling before the house church of about 20. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath and exclaimed that he had talked the other leaders into allowing his group the first reading of this scroll. And with a twinkling of the eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began reading with vigor. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That comes from the introduction of the NIV application commentary. Real people in the body of Christ really struggling to hold on to hope and faith and love. They needed something. Well, they needed someone. And that someone was Jesus the Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is actually one long Greek sentence. Those opening words, Megan, let's put chapter 1, verse 1 on there. Those opening words begin to launch for us 72 words that will tell us who the main character is and what he does. The book of Hebrews actually opens a little bit like the book of Genesis does. In the Old Testament, the book of Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God created. Hebrews starts with, in the past, God spoke. You cannot pick up your Bible and read it without realizing who the real main character is. And it's God. You know, there's an old joke that talks about a cat and a dog living in the same house. The dog wakes up in the morning and he says to himself, my master loves me, he feeds me, he pets with me, he pets me, he plays with me, he must be God. 
The cat wakes up that morning and says, my master loves me, he feeds me, he pets me, he plays with me. I must be God. And we are a church filled with both cats and dogs, some of us in the same human heart at the same time. Even as believers, we can forget who the real main character of our story is. See, we are not created for a story that's simply lobards down to a me and mine. We have been born and then even born again to a story that's captured by he and his and him. And when we trade up to that bigger story and get in our mind's eye that Jesus the Christ is the main character, our souls begin to flourish. In the beginning, God created. In the past, Hebrews says, God is who did something. What did he do? The first verb is that he spoke. Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who knew God, had spoken all the way through their histories. They had grown up with the stories in the synagogue, knowing that God spoke to Moses through a burning bush, and he spoke to Joseph in a dream, and to Daniel in visions, and to Elijah with a whisper. He spoke to Job in a whirlwind, and to Samuel in a quiet voice in the middle of the night. He spoke to Hosea through family circumstances. And he spoke to Joshua through an angel and to Balaam, even through a donkey. For all of Israel's history, they knew that God spoke through clouds at day and fire at night, through ceremonies and through feasts and through sacrifices and through symbols and through offerings and washings and through sages and saints and prophets and poets and blessings but also through battles. He spoke through prosperity and poverty. He spoke through friend and foe. They knew that their God was a speaking God. So now let me ask, why? Why is God so persistent in speaking? The simple answer is this. He speaks because he wants to reveal himself to mankind. So that begs another question. Why does God want to reveal himself to mankind? He reveals himself to mankind because he wants us to have a relationship with him. Don't miss the simplicity and the profundity of God speaking to us. You know, I was a junior in high school when I walked into an algebra class and took a seat right by the door and looked across the room over by the window and saw the, the prettiest girl I'd ever seen. And I so hoped that she would notice me. But for weeks, she didn't even discover that I left a carbon footprint on the planet. And so I finally got the nerve up to go up and speak to her. Her name was Lisa Parker. I now know her as Lisa Schatzman. Why did I speak to her? Because I wanted a relationship with her. When you open the text of Scripture, you are not mining data. You are being invited into relationship. And a God whose heart beats strong and long continues to invite you to know him. He must be very good, but also very strong. Verse two continues to say, God spoke, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, which tells us that Jesus Christ is God's fullest revelation of himself. And remember why God reveals himself. He reveals himself to invite relationship with him. So Jesus Christ is God's fullest revelation of himself, inviting us into the fullest sense of relationship we can have with him. The rest of this first sentence in Hebrew that goes all the way through, verse four, is gonna give us seven rapid-fire short statements about who this majestic magnanimous Jesus is. 
We know that God is speaking, and he continues to tell us what he's like. Look at the rest of verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2 continues by saying, Whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. So Jesus is the heir because Jesus is the creator. He owns all because he, he made all, all of the world, the seen and the unseen. This word, the word world there in the text can, can also be translated ages. What that tells us is that, that Jesus didn't just make the stuff of our world. He made all of the world's history. So this chapter of human history that God has sovereignly picked out for us to live our earthly lives has been designed by him for a purpose, a purpose far greater. And if you had any moments this week where, where you either rolled your eyes or felt despair over the events of the world, whether they go on in our country or in, in the Middle East right now, and you're tempted to think, who is in control of this? Hebrews chapter one tells you, he is. He is sovereign over this chapter of history and he's using it to advance a greater cosmic purpose. Colossians one that we read through the worship time told us that everything was made by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus, which tells me that all matter and all time and all space is, is about Jesus so that all of human history therefore must be his story, and what we'll see in this very next verse, of verse three, is that his story is actually a God story. Look at chapter, or verse three of Hebrews chapter one. Jesus the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So in Jesus Christ, God spoke, right? But he spoke uniquely, because the message and the messenger are the same. They come together in Jesus Christ. That means that Jesus is God in all ways. So Jesus doesn't just come and deliver to us the word of God. Jesus himself is the word of God. John, in his opening sentence of his gospel, uh, says it this way in John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Does not that sound like Hebrews 1? The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. What is this Father like? He is full of grace and truth. Don't you see what both the writer to the Hebrews and the Apostle John are telling us? Jesus points us to God, and he does it by pointing to himself. So can I speak to those who might be questioning Christianity? And maybe you're questioning Christianity because of what you have seen a certain church or a certain Christian do or say. Can I ask you to take your eyes from the followers of Jesus to Jesus Christ who is God himself? And fix your eyes upon him. And evaluate Christianity by the, by the gold standard, which is not us, but it's him. And marvel at his truth that is gracious, but his grace that is also true. And maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you've grown, grown weak in your faith. Maybe if you were gut-level honest to your spouse or your best friend or your community group, you would tell them you're apathetic or quite bored with God. Trade up to a vision of Jesus Christ 
I think we get bored with God because we're focused on Christianity so much, we have lost the apple of our eye, which is Christ himself. Maybe you're running strong in the faith right now. You're in a uniquely passionate and vibrant season of your faith. I'm glad. Keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, when we get to it, will tell us that we run the race with endurance. How? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the beginning, middle, and end of our faith. He is the one who captures our attention. Because Jesus is not just God-like. He's God. And when we see Jesus, we see God in all ways. He's not a close copy. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the exact representation of God. Meaning when Jesus walked and talked in this world, God was walking and talking among us. Verse 3 continues. The next phrase rolls out of the writer's pen and says, Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word which tells me that God is actively and intimately involved in the big and the small of this world. I mean, think about the small. Can you think of anything smaller than us? One individual sitting in a chair in a church service on a Saturday night. But at the same time, we're part of a much bigger story because you don't just sit in a chair on a Saturday. No, no, the chair you sit in sits on a planet, which also sits in a solar system, which sits in a galaxy, which sits in a universe. The small and the big come together. So who sustains all of that? Who takes the largeness of a Milky Way galaxy? of which our solar system sits inside of. And our solar system, by the way, is just one minor star out of 100 billion that compose that huge galaxy. And even that galaxy, as large as it is, the front porch at best of the cosmic house of God's universe. And he holds this thing and sustains it. Who does? The writer tells us Jesus. How does he do it? With his word. See, sometimes I think we picture God sustaining the universe and our lives like Atlas holding the world on his shoulder. See Atlas bent over? It's a big job holding up that terrestrial ball. That's not Jesus. He speaks and it sustains. All of the events of your life and in the universe, holding together. And the word sustains itself does not give us a picture of Atlas. Sustains doesn't mean just holds up. It means to bring it along. As though God is sustaining by his word the chapters of human history and how the universe is working all towards a plan that is moving towards his good purpose. This is our Jesus. We can trust him because he's strong. But we don't trust him just because he's strong. We trust him because he's good. Look at the rest of verse three. Verse three continues in the next phrase saying, after he had provided purification for sins. So he sustains this world by the strength and the power of his word. God is strong. But he then cleanses the stain of sin that is in this world and in our lives By his very sacrifice, our God is good. You know, everything that you find troubling in life or in this world comes down to one word, sin. We infected the deadly virus of God's good creation with sin. How does God deal with that? By stepping in and taking the virus onto himself and cleansing sin at great personal cost to himself by the blood of the cross. And once Jesus finished the sacrificial work the Father sent him to do, verse three continues in the last stanza of the verse, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
So after his resurrection, Jesus ascended back to heaven. By the way, anybody know what last Thursday was? Ascension Day, 40 days after Easter, marked the time that Jesus ascended back to heaven. And the text tells us that he sat on a throne. Why would he sit? Because he's finished the work the Father sent him to do, which was to cleanse sin and conquer death. The cross and the resurrection conquered fundamentally the disease that we needed conquered most. On that throne, we see that Jesus Christ rules all things. Now I want you to flash back, and I want you to think that you yourself were Antonius. And you were the persecuted and poverty-stricken Christian, and you were the one wondering if this new life in Christ was really worth it. After you hear just this opening sentence to the letter to the Hebrews, can you feel hope rising up in your heart? You see the rekindling happening because you know as a Jewish Christian that through all of your human history, God has chosen to to relate to and to lead his people through three offices, meaning three persons that he chose to, to kind of manage his relationship with his people. He functioned through a a prophet who speaks for God. He's the messenger we need most. God always functioned through a, a priest who offered sacrifices to God. He was the mediator we needed most. And he functions through a king, a king who would rule for God. He is the monarch we needed most. And don't forget, you're Antonius. You're a follower of Jesus with deep Jewish roots and you hear the opening of this sentence and the Holy Spirit in your heart is reminding you, you are well led. You are well cared for. The God of heaven and earth is your Messiah and he is worth it. He is your full and final prophet and priest and king. And so you bow your head in that little house church meeting and you're so grateful that you chose to not skip for the third week in a row. And you say, thank you, Lord, for speaking to me. And then that elder 70-year-old Joseph reads the last line of this first sentence, verse four. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. What does that tell us? That tells us that as Doug said, there is no person, place, or thing greater than Jesus Christ. The word name means authority. And so Jesus alone has supreme authority over all, meaning he's supremely sovereign and sovereignly supreme over all of life and all the affairs in our life. And so to the strong and the weak believer in Antonius's little house church 2,000 years ago in Rome, they fix their eyes on Jesus and find hope rekindled and faith growing firm. And to a little church in northwest Arkansas known as Mosaic and Fellowship Bible Church, the weak and the strong, they start to see that Jesus is worth it. And their hope is rekindled and their faith is fixed more firmly because their eyes are seeing who it is they follow. If I could summarize this first long sentence in Hebrews, very succinctly, I would say that it's telling us this. Jesus Christ is our creating, sustaining, saving, and ruling God. We have so much more to say about him in the coming weeks to come through this series in Hebrews. But for now, I think we should at least respond to the first sentence God spoke, don't you? How do you respond when God speaks? I know this is gonna be a shocking observation. We listen. And when we listen and see that Jesus is that good and that strong, that he's the creating, sustaining, saving, and ruling God, 
The listening then translates to worship. We respond to him. And so I think we should respond in the way that Jesus Christ ordained his followers to respond in worship when we gather. He said they would take common elements, daily elements, that would remind them of his purification of sins, a bread and a cup. And they would eat and they would drink, and Jesus said this, in remembrance of me, fixing our eyes back on Jesus Christ. As the worship team comes up, would you just begin to prepare your hearts for communion? And then Jared will lead us through taking the elements together as, as one big house church gathered at this time. Let me pray. Oh God, thank you for speaking because you want to relate to us. And thank you for speaking the full and final word we need most, which is Jesus Christ. I cannot imagine how confusing and hopeless life would be apart from him. But he has come. He's lived the life we couldn't live. He's died the death we deserve to die. And he rose from the grave, guaranteeing our future life with you. We bow our hearts, we bow our lives underneath the one who sits upon the throne. this last bridge together of all glory to you, Lord. Just opening our ears, opening our hearts, giving our affections to the King. All glory to you, Lord.
Go ahead and be getting your bread, getting your cup ready. On the night that Jesus was betrayed before his crucifixion, he gathered his followers and said, I'm going to give you something to remember me. And every time you take this, I want you to remember who I am and what I have done. And he gave them bread and he said, take, eat and remember my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, when you drink it, remember my blood shed for you. Mosaic, go out in the blessing, in the peace and the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you.